We'll have a word of prayer and then we'll get started. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you again for bringing us together tonight and giving us this time together. And Lord, um, we're just grateful, grateful for your grace, grateful for the fact that we can say that we know you and that you love us and that you've given your Son for us that we may live and live eternally with you. Lord, we're, we're grateful for uh, the Scripture and the ability to, to be able to come together and, and uh, study and discuss these things. We ask that you guide us in our discussion and, and uh, grant to us discernment and help us to do what, uh, what your Word instructs us to do, to, to prove all things, hold fast to that which is good, to, uh, to study, to show ourselves approved. And Lord, we pray that uh, through it all we'll come to a better knowledge of you and your will, your grace, your love. And through it all, that you're honored and glorified. We do continue to pray tonight for those among us who are who are sick. We pray for uh, for Leslie. We pray for Robert. We pray for David Corbett. Um, many others who are dealing with the the stuff that's going around. Father, we're we're just uh, ask that you that you grant healing and recovery in these in these situations. And again, we thank you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, one thing, I, I, let, me, let me give you one scripture real quick that I was going to, I don't think I ever turned to last week. I think we, I think we may have mentioned it. But in, in, and then we'll go to 1 Timothy. But first of all, Acts chapter 14. We were talking about, um, well, this will actually come under a couple of categories, but we were talking about the, the multiplicity of elders. And, and here's, a, here's where Paul is, is going about... Um, <clears throat> strengthening the churches and appointing elders. In Acts 14, this is after he is stoned, actually, at, uh, at Lystra. It says in verse 20, the next day he went with Barnabas to Derbe. And then verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders, and there's the verse 23 there, what we're looking for. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there's another example of just um, the function of elders in the local church. And tonight... I want to go to this next section on this sheet, uh, the qualifications of elders. And so I want to look at 1 Timothy chapter 3 as well. We'll be looking at that. And probably also Titus 1, if we have, unless we run out of time. 1 Timothy chapter 3. If I could tell you what, we, what I should do, just read both of those right up front. And then uh, we'll deal with them as we can. Okay, 1 Timothy 3. Verse 1, and at this point I'm just going to, uh, verses 1 through 7 are, is dealing with elders, and then uh, verses 8 through 13 is deacons, but at this point I'm just going to do, read the section on elders, and then we'll jump over to Titus. So First Timothy 3, 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, 
able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. All right, let's flip over to Titus chapter 1. A few pages over there. And beginning in verse 5, Paul says to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Okay. So there, there are the, the requirements. So when, you re, when we read passages, for example, like we just saw in Acts 14, where Paul's going through, uh, through the cities, appointing elders, or like here, Paul instructs Timothy, uh, Titus rather, to appoint elders in Crete. When you read passages like that, this sheds some light on what they were looking for, because here is the criteria. One thing I want you to notice is it does not highlight gifting. What is highlighted in, the, in, these, in this list of, of, uh, of um, qualifications is not gifting, but character. That, that's what the focus is on, the character of the individual. All right, so let's, let's read this section um, from this sheet from Grace, Church, Grace Community Church. The qualification of elders... I should have numbered these pages, but I didn't think about it at the time. But everybody got that? Top of the page says the qualification of elders. The character and effectiveness of any church is directly related to the quality of its leadership. That's why Scripture stresses the importance of qualified church leadership and delineates specific standards for evaluating those who would serve in that sacred position. The qualifications for elders are found in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7, and Titus 1, 6 through 8. According to these passages, an elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, gentle, uncontentious, free from the love of money, not, for, not fond of sordid gain, a good manager of his household, one who has his children under control with dignity, not a new convert, one who has a good reputation outside the church, self-controlled, sensible, able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict, above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, 
loving what is good, just, and devout. And then um, the next paragraph, the single overarching qualification of which the rest are supportive is that he is to be above reproach. That is, he must be a leader who cannot be accused of anything sinful because he has a sustained reputation for blamelessness. An elder is to be above reproach in his marital life, his social life, his business life, and his spiritual life. In this way, he is to be a model of godliness so he can legitimately call the congregation to follow his example. Philippians 10, that's what Paul does in Philippians 3.17. All the other qualifications, except perhaps teaching and management skills, only amplify that idea. In addition, the office of elder is limited to men. 1 Timothy 2, 11-12 says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. In the church, women are to be under the authority of the elders, excluded from teaching men or holding positions of authority over them. Okay. Um, Let's go back to, uh, I want to mention one thing he just said here. Let me grab something real quick. And go back to the first part of 1 Timothy 3. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Um, different ways. Um, they so, Some of them think it was a uh, uh, cultural thing. In other words, in the first century, it was just kind of unheard of, and Paul was just kind of going along with the culture, they say. Um, you know, you wouldn't have a, a, a woman in a position of authority, supposedly, in the first century. Uh, some of them, and I'm just giving you some things I've heard. I, don't, I certainly don't agree with them. But, but uh, some of them just, they, they talk about an, an evolving um, type of uh, uh the term I'm looking for, ethics. So, so in other words, an example that they use is slavery. You know, you have slavery in the first century, and Paul doesn't seem to condemn it. And yet, today, everybody would pretty much recognize across the board, I don't care what um, uh, denominational affiliation you are or what political affiliation you are, Republican or Democrat or otherwise, um, everybody would agree that slavery is wrong. Uh, okay, so so they they look at that and they say, well, you know, it was happening in the first century. Got a whole letter written uh, about a slave, Philemon. Um, Paul doesn't seem to, you know, he doesn't demand that all the Christians let the slaves go and that kind of thing. So they say what happened there was over time, uh, Christians and along with the Christian influence, the rest of society. But over time, Christians came to realize that it was wrong. And so we've grown, you know, we've done away with that, and we don't do that anymore. And so they, they say it's similar with the role of women, that over time we should have grown in that area and realized that, uh, what, that what Paul is instructing here is, is outdated. And, and it, he, you know, he was a man of his times, but now we, we, we've got a better grasp on things, and, and uh, we've grown and matured, and society's grown and matured, and so... Uh, there was, I was just reading one yesterday, pastor in, uh, I never heard of him before, but, but apparently he's a prominent pastor in Franklin, Tennessee. 
And Franklin's not a small town. That's a suburb of Nashville. I've been to Franklin. That's a suburb of Nashville. It's a big place. Uh, in fact, Kerry Underwood is a member of his congregation. Um, he, he came out, this pastor came out supporting uh, gay marriage and all. Uh, I, I think he was, if I remember correctly, I think he's a Baptist pastor. But at any rate, whether he is or isn't, um, he just he just gave this thing about, uh, I, I was trying to remember the example he used to compare it to, but basically he was just saying that God showed him <laughs> that, that, this is, that this is good. So he was kind of saying this similar things, kind of like we've grown up and we understand that, uh, you know, Love is love, no matter no matter who you love. So they come up with all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways of explaining it. You can sure, yeah. You know, of course, the problem is, I mean, you just gotta you just gotta mutilate the word. I mean, you just gotta twist scripture every which way to make it say those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. You can justify just about anything. Uh, so, but that's what they do. That's the kinds of arguments that they use. And uh, um, you know, I, I'll say this real quickly without going off into the the topic of uh, because we may come back to that later. But without going into the to to all of the biblical justification for what what Paul uh, what we just read here. Um, I just mentioned. You know, the scripture grounds it. Jesus does this in Matthew 19. Paul does it in Timothy. They ground it in creation, not culture. When they, when they talk about uh, the, the, the importance of marriage and, and uh, the headship of man, and you know, husbands love your wives, Christ loves your wives be submitted to your own husband, they, they ground those arguments in creation. They go back to Genesis, quoting from there. Um, so they, they don't... They don't this whole idea that well that was a first century cultural thing, uh, that that's not where they you know they, they, you can't do that because that's not what the scripture does. Um, what what Jesus and Paul are saying is this was the way God created things. This is the order that God created when when He made everything. So um, we we may be able to spend some time on that later. We can we can take a closer look at that. All right. So this verse one, First Timothy chapter three, verse one. The saying is trustworthy. I, th- I think that phrase right there is, is, is used by Paul like five different times. It's kind of a attention getter phrase, like "listen," <laughs> and it's usually doctrinal. You know, something he, he uh, like in First Corinthians 15, where he talks about Jesus being uh, court, crucified according to the scriptures and raised according to the scriptures. He, he he begins it with this same phrase. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance. You know. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, um, before we even get into qualifications, I, I wanted to. I, I wish Robert was here because Robert brought this up last week, and I wanted to come back to it. Uh, he 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 raised a question about calling. What is a what is a um, God ordained or God called? Or I, I think it was like asking how do you recognize that or whatever. All right. Here's here's what. Paul says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer. In other words, there's a, there's a, a he's compelled to do this. Paul's saying, if, if, the, the term that's used there is the idea of like stretching forward to, 
to something, like you're, like you're reaching out for something to, to grab hold of it. Um, Paul says if anybody's reaching out for, stretching towards, aspiring to the office of pastor or overseer, um, then he desires a noble task. So, so Paul is saying, number one, uh, the man's got to desire it. He's got to want it. And, and if you got a man, he's telling Timothy, you got a man or you got men who want this, they desire a noble task, Paul says. Now, so, so just give you the, and hopefully we'll, we'll unpack this as we go through these things, but, but just to give you the, sh- the short version of it here. It's a, so what's a God-called man? Well, it's going to be a combination of, number one, he desires it. He wants it because God has put that in him. He's compelled to, to shepherd to, and to, to teach the flock, compelled to preach. And then, and this is what you know, Paul goes into laying out the criteria here, then the church has to recognize it. Just like Paul is, is telling Timothy to do here. You, you're, you're looking for this kind of man, Timothy. He's got he's to fit this description. Um, verses 1 through 7 here. Verses, what was it, 6 through 8 or 6 through 10 over in Titus, uh, Titus 1. So, so the man's got to be compelled to do this. In other words, he's, he, he wants it. This is, what I, this is what God's given me to do. And then the church has to, has to recognize that and say, okay, based on these, on these qualifications, um, he's qualified. And therefore, we, we acknowledge that he's called of God. All right, so the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, now he gets into the qualifications, uh, and, and he does say noble task. In other words, that's a good thing. That's a, uh, the writer of the sheet we just read a minute ago said it's a sacred, sacred office. Um, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous British preacher, Said it's the highest calling on earth. Um, you know, nothing, nothing. I was trying to remember. There was another. I thought that was good. I can't remember if it was him or somebody else that said it. But you know, said he said I wouldn't stoop to be a king, to wear a crown. You know, rather rather preach the gospel. All right. So it's it's a noble task. Verse two. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. Now, what? Um, what this sheet was saying that we just read a moment ago was saying that that's kind of like the summation. And I think this is correct. Some, in other words, you can sum up all of the, the following qualifications here by, by, with that phrase, above reproach. So he says he must be above reproach, and then he spells that out, what, what that looks like. And again, the, 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 the emphasis here, the, the spotlight here is on character. Not on, not on gifting. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't say, you know what, he must be a great administrator. Therefore, here are the qualifications. You know, he's got to be good with blah, blah, blah. Good with, with handling money. Good with doing this. Good with, no. he, does, he, doesn't, he doesn't focus on gifting. He fo- focuses on character. So, an overseer, and remember what we talked about before. That's just talking about a pastor or elder. Usually you see the term elder. This time it's the word overseer. Or uh, if you're looking at Old King James, it's going to have bishop. But, but it's the same office, it's pastor, bishop, overseer, elder, shepherd, same function. So you could substitute any one of those words, and you're talking about the same thing. 
All right, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, one woman, man is the literal term there. One woman, man. Now, I point that out because a lot of people will say, um, okay, Paul said you have to be a husband of one wife, therefore you can never have had a, been divorced or, or, you know, in, in the past or whatever. Uh, I don't think that's correct. I don't think that's what Paul's saying. And, and the phrase is, if you just try to bring it across, if you bring it across literally, it's, it's one woman, man. Now, probably the best explanation I ever heard of that, or it was the negative. In other words, what is not a one-woman man? And I'm not saying this to be critical of one of the... I'm not trying to down the president here, okay? <laughs> but, but, I, but, it, but everybody knows this anyway, and, and, it, and I just thought it really made the point. And it was uh, Brother Carl said, um, you know, to illustrate that, Brother Carl said, Bill Clinton was not a one-woman man. All right? So, like I say, I'm not saying that to slam Bill Clinton, but I'm just saying that to help as an illustration. Now, you kind of understand what a one-woman man is, don't you? Or you understand what one is not. He was not a one-woman man. Somebody who, who, who is, who is uh, they may be married, one wife may have never been divorced, have one wife, but they're chasing other women. That's not a, not a one-woman man, all right? Hmm? Um... Yeah, yeah. Of course, it would go um, unless you just mean unless you just limit it to the physical act, because it would go beyond that, just like Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. So, um, but it, but it would certainly include adultery. That that would be out out of the picture. No nope. polygamy excluded. <laughs> no polygamy. That's right. No polyamory, like, you know, all ex- excluded. Okay? One woman, man. All right. Um, so he's got to be a one woman man, sober minded, self controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now, we'll point this out um, while we're on that one. And, and most of these are pretty self-explanatory. If you're going to see a little variation in different translations, but I'm reading from the ESV here. Um, but um, able to teach, or apt to teach. That's going to be the main distinction between elders or overseers. That's going to be the main distinction between overseers and deacons. In other words, when we get to the qualifications for deacons, they're pretty much the same. Except that the deacons are not required to be able to teach. That's not their function because they're, 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 they're servants and they serve in a, in a different, compa- different capacity. Um, like uh, in Acts, you know, it seems that they're literally serving tables, serving food. Uh, so they, so they, they, they provide uh, service, services, service-oriented services, right? So they're not required to teach. They're not prohibited from teaching just not required to teach. You, you can be a deacon without, without being a teacher. All right? But you cannot be an elder, cannot, a pastor, overseer, unless, unless you can teach, unless you're uh, able to teach. So that's, a, a, that's a, a major distinction between the two. 
Verse 3, not a drunkard. That's good. That's always a good thing. should not, not be a drunkard, right? <laughs> and I, I mentioned this before, but really, the, these, ought, these things ought to characterize every, every Christian, right? Again, except maybe for able to teach, but, but uh, these character traits ought to characterize every Christian. All right, so not a drunkard. That is pastor, overseer. He cannot be a drunkard. Cannot be given to, to much wine. He cannot be violent, but gentle. That is, he needs to be gentle. Not quarrelsome. Not a lover of money. He must, verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. And here's, here's the, um, the principle Paul puts um, regarding that. Verse 5, for if, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? There, there is a correlation, right? You've got res- responsibility in the household of God. Um, and I think that's true in, in secular things too, you know. Again, not to pick on, uh, not meaning to be picking on Bill Clinton here, but, but you know, when you see those kinds of scandals in public office, they should probably go move on. Uh, I mean, it seems like to me, step down, do something else. Um, because it, it, when, when that kind of thing's going on, everybody, y'all remember when all that was going on and they kept talking about uh, compartmentalizing in the media? <laughs> in other words, you can be a great president and, you know, be immoral in your personal life or, or whatever it is. And they would use examples like, you, know, you take your car to a mechanic, you don't, you, know, you don't ask him if he's ever cheated on his wife or whatever. Um, well, <laughs> uh, let's just say somebody that's, that's involved in that kind of immorality, they, there's, some, there's some character flaws there that is going to affect in some way, every area of their life, more than likely. All right? So, certainly, uh, in the case of uh, being a pastor, overseer, um, it's, it's prohibited. I mean, you, you cannot, cannot be engaging in those things. That's why it says one woman, man, and, and so forth. Yeah, you, you, yeah, you, you. It's just hard for it to, to not bleed over. I mean, he and he may be a great mechanic in terms of what he can do, but 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 will he cheat you in some way? I mean, if he cheat on his wife, why wouldn't he cheat on on you? So so uh, that's right. It's just I, same here because it just uh, it'd be hard for it not to bleed over somewhere else. All right, so he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Which is God's house, by the way. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert. King James says a a novice. That's, That's the idea there, recent convert. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. So that's... um, not only for the good of the church, but that's for his own good. You, you don't you don't want him uh, falling into into pride and the condemnation of the devil. So Paul prohibits the novice. Now, there's a little bit of subjectivity there. I mean, you might uh, or relativity. You could say, what's a novice? Saved six months, saved two years, saved five years. What? What's a novice? Yeah, maybe we can talk about that later too. But. <laughs> 
It might be different in different situations. Okay, so you can't be a novice. Verse 7, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So again, all of those things are pretty much summed up in, uh, in that first, first phrase. The office of over, uh, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires noble tasks. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And then the rest of it is kind of spelling that out, what it means to be above reproach. So it's talking about a consistency in character, and again, and not perfection. It's not, it's not meaning perfection. You know, there's only one perfect shepherd, pastor, and that's Jesus, pastor with a capital P. Um, he's perfect. There are no human pastors that are perfect. So, so you know, you're going you're gonna to see, because all of these things are sinful and because we're all sinful, um, some of these things, I mean, you're, you're going you're gonna to recognize from time to time in an individual or, or whatever, maybe one time or whatever, whatever it is. But they cannot characterize, their lives cannot be characterized by these things. Cannot be. I remember... Uh, I was licensed with an organization called World Ministry Fellowship in uh, oh, 88, 1988. I was licensed in 1988, ordained in 1992. At any rate, I remember my pastor coming to me, and uh, you know we had had some conversation along these lines about, uh, uh, you know, told him I was believe the Lord was calling me to the ministry. So he he came to me at one point and he said. Um, of course, I, I didn't know about all of their steps and this and that, whatever whatever you had to do. But he, he just came and he said, "Okay, we, what we need to do is is uh, get you get you licensed." And uh, and I said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa wait, hold on." <laughs> I said, "I you know I don't want to jump the gun on anything here, you know." I'm, and 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 he said, "No, no, no." He said, "That's that's exactly what we're we're going to guard against. That's that's why you're going to be licensed first, and for a period uh, which turned." Their their uh, their criteria was you you were to be licensed for anywhere from three to five years. They said you're going to be licensed first so that you'll be directly under the oversight of a, of an experienced pastor, and then you'll be ordained. And he said so that's he said that's exactly what we're doing is we're we're gonna we're gonna help help you make sure you don't jump the gun on anything here. But uh, but yeah, there there are you, you do there's you may not. Do it exactly like that, but but there are things that need discipleship that needs to be done uh, in order to uh, make sure that um, he's not a novice by the time he, he he's actually functioning as a as a pastor. Uh, no, it's not a scriptural. Like I say, that's what that organization did to. But I mean, ordination is not scriptural in in the, in the sense that there's no. There's no talk of, of ordination in the in the Bible. Um, that's just a that's a way of uh, in, in the New Testament. I mean, in terms of New Testament ministry, but that's a way of the church saying we we see God's call on you and we're affirming it. And it's not mentioned in the New Testament regarding Christian ministry. You know, there's no idea of a of a, like a because we don't have like a priesthood. I mean, there's no idea of of, of uh, ordination in that sense. You know, in fact, I think if I'm not mistaken, um, 
Charles Spurgeon never was ordained uh, for that reason, just because he didn't see it in Scripture and he, he, he you know, just didn't think it was scriptural. But, um, but like I say, the way, the, the way that my understanding of it, and this is why I don't have a problem with it, and I don't have a problem necessarily with licensing or ordaining, is because I just see it as, as, a, as a public way of the, of a, of the church saying we, we, uh, we acknowledge your calling. And I think that's all that's, that's meant by it. It's, it's not an ordination in the sense, like in the Old Testament, when, when, a, when a prophet was anointed as a prophet, you know, you had a, the, the oil was poured on his head and, and uh, so forth. So it does mention laying on of hands. Paul talks about uh, Timothy, um, the presbyter, the, the elders laying, laying hands on Timothy and he's gift, gifted in that, uh, receiving his gifts. But. Um, if you think in terms, like I say, of often like like ordained as king, ordained as prophet, well, we don't have that in the New Testament. You know, ordained as what? You know, ministry, priest, whatever. I mean, we use those words. We we make a difference between ministry and laity, but that's not that's not in the scripture. That's just I mean that's that's an invention of man. You know, you don't have two classes of Christians. Now you have different functions. Some some are teachers, pastors, evangelists, whatever, um, and others do other things. I mean, but but there but there's not like two classes, the priesthood, unless you're Roman Catholic or Episcopalian or something. But <laughs> but, but uh, yeah. So there's so there's no there's no instruction. To, you know, here's how you ordain a pastor. It just speaks of, it just speaks of them being appointed, chosen. All right, but yeah, you know the particular thing that I was referring to. I do, I do think that's a good idea. You know, have some kind of something set in place where they have some good discipleship oversight. All right, I think we're going to have to stop there. So we have time to do the Lord's table here. So we're not going to make it to Titus tonight. But if if you you know, and we read it earlier, the the the, uh, the qualifications in Titus are just almost. Identical to what you've got, what you've got here in Timothy. Um, one of the the main points that I want us to see here, as I'm as I'm closing, is that there is a distinction in this sense. In, in other, if you've got qualifications, you know, Paul says, which we do. Paul says, this is what an elder's got to be. All right, then that means he or them is identifiable, right? So it's clear who the, who the leader, leader or leaders of the church is or are, and vice versa. It's clear to the leaders of the church who they are leaders of because elders are appointed in the various congregations. So, so, so you know, the, in other words, the elders in Corinth not accountable for the congregation in Ephesus, right? They got the, they got their own elders, their own church government, and it's and it's all identifiable. In in Hebrews, let me give you one more, and we'll just to make this point. In Hebrews thirteen, and we've talked about this <clears throat> um, in talking about church membership as well, because it it, it uh, goes hand in hand 
And that's, you know, again, something we'll be needing to address again in the near future, too. Um, so it's a good time to bring it up again. In Hebrews 13:7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their fates. You know, in saying all of those things, it's understood that they are identifiable. All right, I look, I look down in verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So you've got, you got a two-way thing going here. In, in other words, for the, for the congregation to obey their leaders, they have to know who their leaders are. Right? In other words, who, who am I to be submitted to? Who am I under? Who is who is who is it that um, keeps watch over my soul? And then the other way around. Who as as an elder, as a pastor, who am I accountable for? Paul, or Paul, I'm prone to do that with the Book of Hebrews, but we don't know that it was Paul. The writer of Hebrews says uh, again, verse 17: Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they, that is your leaders are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I will stand before the Lord and give an account for you. So it's also, I need to know, who, who am I accountable for? And what's assumed here is, both ways, is that it is identifiable. Congregation knows who their pastors are. The pastors knows who their congregation is. And like I say, we, we discussed that before uh, to, to some length, really, uh, in talking about church membership. Again, it's kind of like talking about ordination. The New Testament doesn't say that we, that we must have a membership list, uh, you know, but some, some way of keeping up with the membership is assumed there, or else none of this would, would, would be... Uh, would make sense. You know, that they know, they know who they're accountable. Leaders know who they're accountable for. The congregation knows who they're to submit to. So, so um, they've got a way of understanding that. I assume, uh, well, they, perhaps they had a list. We don't, we don't know. But a list seems to be a, somehow you've got a, an official membership. All right. Well, let's, uh, Let's pray, and I'm going to read from, from 1 Corinthians 11 before we take the Lord's Supper here. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word and for this time together. And Lord, we do ask again that you give us understanding in these things. And Father, uh, as we prepare now to partake of your table, Lord, we ask that you help us to examine ourselves and, Lord, help us uh, internally to prepare, uh, to prepare for this, Lord. We want to do exactly what you've instructed us to do, to remember the Lord's death until he comes, to faithfully uh, show it in this observance. And, Father, we're asking for your, for your blessing on it. Again, we thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.